Hey there, my name is Dan. My name is Joshua, and, and we, we are, are the, the Unauthorized, Unauthorized Critics, Critics Circle. Circle. Now, Joshua, tell the listener what we do here at the UCC. With pleasure. Here at the UCC, we review theater with the normal bitcheries and qualms. By watching the video recordings from of questionable origins of various productions. Welcome to Gypsy Mania. This is the Unauthorized Critic Circle's first ever event series, and we are so excited to be dedicating a week of programming to what many call the greatest American musical of all time. Well, it's certainly one of the most talked about, and we will be proving that point episode after episode after episode. We will be adding wood to the fire. <laughs> you know, this episode, we are going to be covering Ethel Merman in the original Broadway company of Gypsy, and Angela Lansbury in the first Broadway revival. In order to talk about these productions, we listened to audio recordings, which you will be able to find on the internet yourself. So, without further ado, please enjoy our discussions of the original Broadway production and first Broadway revival of Gypsy. Hello, folks. We are standing here right now outside of the Winter Garden Theater. The audience is coming out of the theater. Uh, ma'am, ma'am, please, what did you think of the oh, show? Oh, oh, I loved it. I loved it. That Sid Charisse's niece, Zan, that's a star. <laughs> she was terrific. I loved it. You, you think you're going to go see it again? Oh, oh, it's terrific. I'm going to see it again. Um, eight more times. Eight more times. Different productions. M my husband, my husband, <laughs> he lives in a time machine. We're going to do it all. We're going to see it all. <laughs> I, I, I loved it. And that's Zan so, Charisse. So, what a star. So, so you didn't like her? I loved her. <laughs> I think it's a bold choice going with the same bit two episodes in a row. <laughs> well. <laughs> but if the, original, the shoe fits, I suppose. The original bit was about Sid Charisse. We have Zan, we have Sid Charisse's niece, Zan. Say that five <laughs> times fast. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> we have Sid Charisse's niece, Zan. She's in the show, in the Angela Lansbury production, so it, 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 kismet, it lines up perfectly. You have to do the same bit. Are we talking about kismet or are we talking about gypsy? Uh, you didn't watch kismet at Encores? No, should I have? Oh. Yikes. <laughs> Whoops. We can, do dream, we can do dream girls again if you'd like. Okay, I'm good with that. Let's go. Dream girls. <laughs> I I think I think I'm gonna see it eight more times. My husband has a time machine. Is the single funniest adaptation you could have made to the original. <laughs> All different productions. My husband has a time machine. I that was something I sincerely wasn't expecting. Uh huh. Anyway. You didn't trust me. You didn't trust me when I told you <laughs> I need you to feed me a line that's, for the bit. That's you... just. That's just because I don't think you have taste or a sense of humor. That's all. Thank you, everybody, for listening to our lovely podcast, <laughs> The Unauthorized Critics Circle. It's been 20 weeks, hey, and now it's over. Hey, 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 hey.
Hey, 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 happy 20th episode. Happy 20th. Can you imagine 20 Tec- episodes and at least 120 hours of recording these fuckers? So everybody, welcome. Thank you for sticking with us. To what is episode... Oh, thank you for staying with us and welcome to what I suppose will be episode 20.1 of the Unauthorized Critics Circle. No, 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 we'll just number them from here on out. Okay, each one of these is going to be its own Yeah, episode. number. Mm-hmm. Look, right. certain people have numeral conventions, numbering conventions. I don't do math, and we're unauthorized anyway, so we create our own numbers. Musical and sure. numeric. Do we we have create our own numbers. All right, sure. Let's. We'll figure out how to make them official later on. Mm-hmm. Invent, invent a new number right now. Do it. Flifty Bidget. Damn it, you're good. Mm-hmm. Fast. Can't get me. <laughs> so, welcome to this episode of the Unauthorized Critics Circle. Um, and welcome to the first episode of our Gypsy Sweeps Week. I have to give the credit to Dan. This was all his lovely, illustrious idea. And therefore, I will let him express his artistic vision to the audience. Dan, why don't you go ahead and explain what uh, you had in mind for this next week of episodes? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So, we started recording this podcast, and very early on, I went to Joshua, whom I almost called Jason in my head, and I have no fucking clue why. That hurts. I I went to Joshua, (laughs) and I said... I have a dream. And the dream was such. It was not of a dancing cow. It was that we would cover Gypsy. But picking a specific recording of Gypsy, well, that's a real Sophie's choice. And with better actors than Meryl (laughs) Streep. So... (laughs) Whoa, whoa, <laughs> we've said, lost a good number of our audience just then. I said to Josh, well, she was actually, she was fantastic in Sophie's Choice. It's her musicals that are unfortunate. I said to Joshua, let us do a celebration, thank the listeners, and have a lot of fun by covering all of Gypsy, every production every bootleg so what we are doing this week is we are not spacing this out you're not going to get two months of gypsy uh, week by week what we are doing this week is every day this week there will be a new episode posted with a new production of gypsy we'll be swell i'm shaking we'll be great i'm shaking just thinking about it Yeah, because you have to actually watch all these. (laughs) (laughs) We are we are really just delivering. We are delivering to our audience. Dexperience. This is a Dexperience, not an immersive theatrical Dexperience, but this is podcast du Dexperience. We have a whole week of brilliant discussions into what some call the greatest musical. Uh, ever made in American theater. Yes. And And Joshua, what are we doing this episode? Well, this episode, we decided to um, start at the very beginning, which um, I believe is a very good place to start. 
Um, Trash. That beat Gypsy at the Tony Awards. How dare you bring that up at a time oh. like this? Oh, Trash. Has the wound not healed? Has the wound not healed yet? Clearly not. So we decided to start back in the in its original roots with uh, the first two Broadway productions of Gypsy. Since there aren't full video recordings of them, we've decided to stick to listening to their audios and therefore we're able to cram two in as we're able to get that discussion out there in a sort of more concise format. So we are going to be you discussing think. the original. You think, but we haven't bro- started talking yet. True. Fair enough. Fair enough. I'll, I'll, I'm holding out hope. So we are going to be talking about um, the original Broadway production of Gypsy, particularly the closing night performance of the original Broadway production, starring none other than Ethel Merman Ethel. originating the role of Rose. It's the merm. The okay, we're not gonna say the merm much more often on this episode, I don't think. That's what people uh, called her. She was the merm. She that's what she was called the merm. A lot of people called her the merm. Why did they not like her? They loved her. It was an honorific. Okay, and on top of that, we have also grabbed an audio recording from the first Broadway revival. Uh, in 1974, starring Angela Lansbury. Excuse Azra. me, that is Dame Angela Lansbury. Dame Angela you. Lansbury. I apologize, I will correct that in the future. She is Dame Angela Lansbury, or Angie. <laughs> I think that one's worse, actually. <laughs> so, where do we start with Gypsy? Well, I in I, normal here's, here's, normal episodes, we talk about this show. We I I think we have that's pointless. Eight here. episodes to get that out, don't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure we will talk about every line in this entire show by the time we're done. Plus, can you really critique a work of Gypsy's brilliance? Critique? I don't know. It might be easy to sing its praises. Yes, yes. Um, which you could do for hours, and I'm sure we will over the course of these seven or eight episodes. I guess, though, we should discuss, since a lot of people call it such, is Gypsy the best musical ever written? Do you have a definitive answer to that question? You are answering that question first. I think there are many metrics... To which this triumphs very easily over any other musical. In in the terms of, is this one of the best star vehicles ever created for a Broadway musical? Yes, that's not even a question. Does this have one of the most consistently good scores in all of Broadway? Yes, in my opinion, very much so. Does this elicit some of the greatest performances? For the most part, I think yes. All around, is this one of the most significant Broadway musicals of all time? Yes, that is not a question. It is one of the most significant Broadway musicals of all time. It is extremely deserving of its place. There are a lot of elements that have had ripple effects that lead directly to now. You know, one could say that ever since Gypsy, every 
quote-unquote diva star performance leading actress style show has been a ripple of the Ethel Merman effect. It would be very easy to make that argument. Mm. We'll talk about that later with Ethel. Sure. That's, that's I think, all, the, all I can really put to it for now. That's all I think I can say for certain. I would like to hear uh, what your thoughts are. My certain thoughts are, if you are going to call Gypsy the best musical ever written, I will not fight with you. I'm not, yeah, there's nothing, I can't go, well, actually, no, I I don't have any, I don't have any arguments to fight against that. I will not blink, I will not respond, if that is your truth, I can understand it, I can sometimes agree with it. Yeah. Personal tastes, um, I don't know, there are so many times when you just hate the kids' material, and that leads me to say that something greater, more personally aligns with my taste. Is it the best musical ever written? I will not fight with that fact. That can be the truth. Uh, is it my favorite? Well, it's got to be at least top five. Yeah. And I don't think there is another show that we would be spending seven or eight episodes and actually looking forward to it. Yeah, right? And people always point to Gypsy and say that's the best book of all time. Which, sure. I'm not going to fight you there. Yeah, I have have things to say about the book very much that I think are going to come out over, over the series. So with that said, you want to get into it? I'm trying to think of a reference. I can't. Yes, let's do it. Okay. Okay. Sing out, Joshua. Uh... No, you're supposed to sing Let Me Entertain You. I refuse. You're already fucking this up. (laughs) You're already fucking this up. Um... You're more of a Louise. Okay, well, that would help later on. When I have an idea. <laughs> I am comf- I am comfortable You'll, with my body. Thank you very much. You will never guess what character I am. Yeah, not a chance. <laughs> never guess. Who would have known? You are. You know who you are, Dan? Uh, I will slap you if this answer is incorrect. <laughs> I will reach through my laptop and slap you silly. You, you, you will slap me. Are you ready? You are the manager of the theater... That Mama Rose is at when she and Herbie meet for the first time. That is who you are. <laughs> and he has now left the Discord call. <laughs> How He's back on. dare you? <laughs> Listener, you need to understand, he, he physically left the call. I disconnected from the call. <laughs> because I will not stand for such things. <laughs> I have dreams. I'm taking my non-existent kids and I'm going places. Anybody that stays home is dead. If I die, it won't be from sitting. It'll be from fighting to get up and get okay. better Okay, all right, fine, 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 Dan. Jesus Christ. Fine, you want to hear it? You're, you're Rose. Or do you feel good about that? Do you feel oh, happy? Oh, how insightful of you to say. <laughs> <laughs> I 
That's the smartest thing you've said on this podcast. Is that something the history you're of this of? podcast? Is that something you feel happy to say? Yes, because I am a diva that can handle that role. Oh God! And I know in my heart of hearts that I am not Rose because I would never, never, never have children. And with that, let's start. <laughs> so, where do we? Where, where? Where do you want to jump into? I say let's start with the with the original Broadway production. Okay, the original Broadway production starring Ethel Merman. This is Ethel Merman. Ethel Merman. Ethel Merman. Ethel Merman. I think the fact that there is a full, accessible recording of Ethel Merman's performance in Gypsy is one of the greatest blessings to any musical theater aficionado god shined on us and blessed us and and i don't want to like get too heavy into it but jesus it's probably the clearest audio i've ever heard in my life it's clearer than the lansbury (laughs) audio i could not believe that the lansbury audio is what 15 years later dan it's clearer than a lot of the audios i've heard recorded in In the the last decade yes yeah it is insane, and there's not a single body mic. Not a single one. There is not a single body mic. All the way up to, I believe, Annie was the last best, one best musical at the Tony Awards, and Annie did not have body mics. I believe that was the last show. And then people started wearing body mics, but not everybody. The leads started wearing body mics. And, of course, the first body mic was Lena Horne in Jamaica. But that one, that body mic had a wire that they had to figure out where that wire was going throughout the show. <laughs> that was not wireless. Um, have you seen the Have you seen the Tony performance of Jesus Christ Superstar? Oh, they're holding the mics. Well, they hold the mics in here too. That was Tom O'Horrigan. Well, uh, th- that kind of staging where it's like the the cables snaking mm-hmm. off into the wings. I have mm-hmm. such conflicting feelings about. Well, that's what miking was at the time. There were no wireless mics. Not really. Yeah, of course. This does not have any body mics, and still, you pick up everything. Crystal, Crystal, there's not a single, like, there's not so much as a mumble. (laughs) Well, you don't hear Merman say, sing out, Louise, because, um... Well, the audience, no one in the audience could hear Ethel Merman say, sing out, Louise. Which is saying a lot because the merm, she can really, you know, project. Yeah, I found out. I found out while I was listening to it that this was the closing night performance, and I remember the entire time just going like, "Really? Oh my god! There's a re- like, there's a recording that exists, and it's of the final performance." Mm-hmm. That is bonkers to me, and it- so, and I know there's there's that notorious there's the notorious story of like, uh, you know. Ethel Merman is, um, you know, get it and it's locked. If you've seen one performance of Ethel Merman in a role, you've seen every single performance of hers throughout the run. She was accurate. That was the style at the time. That was the world she came from. Yeah, of course. You have that performance, and she was very professional. And she, I remember, she went to, I believe, Jerry Orbach once they did Annie Get Your Gun in the 60s. And Jerry Orbach said, you know... 
Ethel, I'm not always giving you the same line reading and you're always reacting the same way. And she was proud of, my performance never varies. My performance is my performance. Every single audience member is going to get the same performance, whether they're here on a Wednesday matinee or the biggest industry sun Saturday night ever. I think now is a good time to talk about what Ethel Merman meant to Broadway. Mm-hmm. I say this... Without being apocryphal, Ethel Merman is the single most consequential vocalist in Broadway history. Mm -hmm. And here is why. Ethel Merman, in a time when there were not microphones, Ethel Merman had a voice that could ring out, reach every seat of the theater, not only reach every seat of the theater, she is on pitch. This is not something that is always known at the time and was not common. Ethel Merman had amazing sense of pitch. A lot of performers uh -huh. at the time just did dying swoops up to notes and were... We, we have that in one of the performers of this audio. And we're not always vocally accurate. So she's on pitch, and because she is so loud, you're going to understand every lyric. She was a lyricist's yep. dream. <laughs> and then also why she is the most consequential vocalist in Broadway history. When you sent an orchestration that Ethel Merman didn't like, she would throw it back. She would tell you to do something different. She would not accept orchestrations she did not like. And if you've listened to Carrie Takanawa's Gershwin album... Um, which you probably haven't. Yeah. She uses all of the original orchestrations from all of the original numbers. And the orchestrations are violin heavy, lots of strings, and generally they sound like the inside of a greeting card. When we think of Broadway music, we think of brass. And we really don't get that brass constantly performing until you get Ethel Merman because Ethel Merman can go she can compete with a brass section you are still going to hear her she will still win and because she threw back those orchestrations they kept adding brass they kept adding things that challenged her and because she's up for the challenge the nature of Broadway orchestrations themselves completely changed sheesh there is no vocalist in Broadway history that has completely changed the sound of Broadway, except for Ethel Merman. Golly, I never knew that. Mm-hmm. That's magnificent. You brought in an orchestration she didn't like, she was getting someone else to do it, or you were going to fix it to her specifications. And oddly enough, she never threw back an orchestration for Gypsy. This was exactly what she wanted to be singing, exactly how she wanted it orchestrated from the get-go. And you listen to Gypsy, there has never been a brass heavier musical. Yeah. Wow. Those, 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 those horns be blowing. Like, you say Broadway music, what you are listening to in your head, even if you have never heard it before, even if you don't know it, you are listening to the Gypsy Overture. Yeah. It's so thrilling. Mm -hmm. Like as soon as you as soon as you hear the the what is that a slide whistle like the 
What is that? Yeah, it's the slide whistle. Yeah, as soon as you hear the slide whistle, that's like a catapult. Mm-hmm. You know? You have this huge triumphant buildup. And then, like, you're just slammed into the story. You're slammed into the world. There's something about it that's so powerful. Julie Stein really just, like, something snapped. How do you create something with that fluency? Well, it's also worth noting that although Julie Stein wrote the themes that are included in the overture... Overtures are actually written by the orchestrators. So this overture was written by Sid Raymond and Robert Gensler, Red Gensler. And my God, did they do a set of orchestrations here? Did they ever? Like, I don't understand why one would want, like, uh, unless you're scaling back for some unknown reason, I don't see why anyone would want to reorchestrate Gypsy. (coughs) Melda! Oh boy, let's not, let's not, let's not, let's not start there. Let's at least, let's at least convince our viewers that you're going to be somewhat impartial as we go about this series. I am going to be impartial. I will genuinely try and go in with an open mind on that episode. Um, I still have not seen this production. I still, I still have a blank slate there. Oh, you lucky duck. We'll get to this, folks. We'll get to this. Um, anyway. <laughs> so, Gypsy, the original Broadway mm-hmm. production, um, do you just want to start with your notes? Okay, I, I, I just don't know, like, what aspect to focus in on. I'm, I'm... Why don't we just go in order of the show? And if you have something sure, specific to say, bring up that note at that point. Got it. Okay. Uh, let's go through it beat by beat. Uh, this production, we start, I I guess we already did talk about it, but I'll bring it back to this recording specifically, the overture. Um. Okay. So bright, so powerful, such a charge. It's like you can't, like I can't imagine hearing that sound in a, that exact sound in a theater anymore. The overture gets into the strip section and i went about half the speed they went they go in to hyperdrive during that overture hyperdrive during the strip section and the audience loses their fucking this is a rock concert of gypsy like really god they launch into that strip section you literally hear the audience go oh and they all just start crazily applauding well deserved damn well deserved when was the last time you were at a musical and they played the overture and everyone shut the fuck up like they're supposed to i mean yeah. Here, not only do they shut you, the fuck up, they are actively engaged in the overture. <laughs> oh, yeah, overture starts like a goddamn rock concert. Then we go into Uncle Jocko's. There's like this like brisk energy among 
the entire cast. Like these that is really on the money. So what I was about to say. This fucker moves along. That opening scene <laughs> that normally takes like five minutes, they speed through that and they get that shit done, and it feels like two minutes. <laughs> they they clocked it out as 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 quick as they were able to. They were like, okay, okay, okay. Well, let's get on with the material. There is, and this is where I want to talk about Jerry Robbins. Sure. So this is the thing that is most apparent in the production. God is this well-paced. God is this exciting. God, does this director, whoever he is, does he know how to pace a musical? I, I We can't see the staging, but I would surmise that is completely instinctual. That is in the bones, as Arthur Lawrence would say. Um, mm. He has musical theater bones, and boy, are those bones active. Yes, he was an absolute genius of that craft he now joshua tell tell the audience who jerry robbins is well jerome robbins is a director choreographer who is responsible for some of the greatest artistic triumphs to have ever been put on an american stage uh he is responsible for gypsy both like in the development process of gypsy he is integral in the creation of west side story of the pajama game, of the king and I, of Fiddler on the Roof, of a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. He is one of the most influential figures in what I think is the integration between material and staging in musical theater. Doesn't have the cleanest record. Mm. Mm. Why is that? Isn't the most... Jerome Robbins was one of the most brilliant minds in all of American musical theater and also a deeply, deeply, deeply abusive man. Mm. A a pretty shitty person to to deal with as well. Which brings us to the famous Baton story. Oh, hit me with it. Have you heard the Baton story? I know something of Jerry Robbins in a chair, but nothing of a baton. Okay. Gypsy is out of town, and in the adult right June character... No, no, no. It's out of town in 1959. Jerry Robbins is directing it. Okay. And they have this dancer cast as the adult baby June. And she was one of Jerry Robbins' favorite dancers from West Side Story. And they have a meeting, and they realize she cannot sing the role. We must get rid of her. Oh, man. So he let them get rid of her. And they bring in Lane Bradbury, who opens the show on Broadway. Lane Bradbury comes into the show out of town. And there is the scene before... um, You'll never get away from me. That Chinese restaurant scene. Part of the staging. Baby June has to move the teapot so that Ethel Merman can take her arm, sweep the entire table, put all of her, all of the restaurant's silverware into her bag. It's a big visual joke. Yeah. Lane Bradbury forgets to move the teapot at one performance. One performance. Jerry Robbins is livid. Absolutely livid. She forgets to move the teapot at a second performance. He is absolutely livid. 
He calls her for a half-hour rehearsal and has the stage manager say whatever the cue line was, and she moves the teapot. That was the only thing they did for a half-hour. Line, move the teapot. Line, move the teapot. Line, move the teapot. And she has to go personally apologize to Ethel Merman that she forgot to move the teapot. Christ. And this is also the time to mention, by the way, that no matter what show Jerry Robbins was working on, he picked one girl and one boy that he would pick on and completely abuse and demolish, just rag on them the entire rehearsal period. The girl was Lane Bradbury. The guy that plays Tulsa, that was the boy for Gypsy. Those were the two he picked to completely trash. Well... They get to the first preview in New York, and Lane Bradbury, I saw an interview of her. She was near tears talking about moving the teapot. She was so completely traumatized by Jerry Robbins in this entire ordeal that 40, 50 years later, I believe Jerry Robbins was dead by now, she was crying talking about the teapot. So, which is a great thing to have in a director, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She said she was terrified to do anything because he did not like her. Nothing she was going to do was correct, and it was not a nurturing environment. First preview in New York. She forgets to move the teapot because she was so focused on move the teapot, move the teapot, move the teapot, that she stopped listening. So she missed the cue line. She goes back to her dressing room after the scene. Jerry Robbins is there waiting for her. He screams at her, You bitch! And the second preview of Gypsy in New York City. During the audition for T.T. Granzinger, she gets on a train. There are batons in the train. She picks up the batons. She twirls the batons and she does a split, which shows that the act has not evolved. They might have moved it to a farm. They might have added the cow, but they're doing the same act for years and years and years. Yeah. The second preview, she gets on the train. She looks around and there are no batons anywhere to be found. Jerry Robbins was so upset that she forgot to move the teapot that he went backstage, he yanked the batons, and he hit them. So she would be out on stage without a prop. Holy fucking shit. That is Jerry Robbins. <sighs> I am on edge hearing that story. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <sighs> wow. Which goes to show, theatrical genius... Is one thing. Decency is an entire other. Yeah, and they aren't often related. Or even intersect. (sighs) But we have Gypsy. But we have Gypsy. And he clearly does one fuck of a job on it. So, do you want to go back into talking about the material? Yes. So, this moves, this moves, my god, this moves. And I want to say, Ethel Merman gets more laughs than anyone else we're going to cover this entire week. Ethel Merman gets that it's a, like, really nails the comedy of it, you know? Well, it used to be called musical comedy. She grew up in musical comedy. She knows how to deliver a joke. 
<laughs> yeah, God, does she ever. It's, you know, the first scene, you know, where did you catch our act? Were you here? Were you there? I caught you at the Odd Fellows. Ah! My first husband was an Odd Fellow. And the entire audience. <laughs> no one ever gets a laugh on that line again. No one will ever get a laugh on that line. <laughs> and the audience just falls out of their seats laughing. She's hysterical. I'm, I'm, I'm laughing about it now. Like, of course that comes with, you know, you have someone originate a character. Of course they're gonna, they're gonna get it the best. You know, that's... That's logical. Not always, but the show was written for Ethel Merman, and it was... Sorry, not that it originated, I should say, when a show's written for a character. Written for her, fitted to her, and specifically, vocally, Ethel Merman City. Her. Yeah. and, And so, you know, it's natural to assume that one would be able to get it with such ease, but... Like, this is something else. And I gotta be honest, by the middle of some people, I was sitting here with my laptop, my laptop was playing the audio, and I was screaming, Uh Give them hell, F! Give them hell! (laughs) I mentioned this briefly on our Dream Girls episode. Um, I equated Jennifer Holliday to Ethel Merman, and I said... Where they are alike is you are seeing a sprinter run a marathon at a sprinter's pace. They are never losing their pace. They are never once faltering. It is something that a normal human being should never be able to do. And you really feel that Ethel Merman turns Gypsy into an absolute sporting event. And not in that it's boring and I don't want to watch it and who the fuck cares. A sporting event in that (laughs) I am screaming at my laptop. Well said. Thank you for putting it in those terms because I wouldn't have been interested any other way. Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's thrilling. That's the word. It's thrilling. You're so attached to the essence of this character. You're so, like, hooked in. There's so much passion and charisma and devotion and exuberance that comes from the character that it's hard not to attach yourself immediately. It's the kind of character that demands attention from the audience. It's so thrilling to see that when it's successful. It's It just is. Mm-hmm. Like right off the gate, you're extremely reeled in by her. Like, it's not something that you can just summarize the experience of listening to it, you know? It, She's so overwhelming. And I think yes. Very overwhelming. That is, I think, the right word for, for Madame Rose in the first place. Madam. Madam. Madama. Madam, she is American. Mi- Mrs. Times three. Get rid of your fucking Quebecois accent. Oh, come on. Come on. I know you're not in Quebec, but it is Madam. It is not Call Me Madame, which is another Ethel Merman show. It's Call Me Madam. Okay. Madam Rose. There we go. Or I could could just call her Mama if if you'd prefer. Either way. But it is not Mama Rose. She is never called Mama Rose. 
in the show. Yeah, that's a very that's a very Luke. I am your father thing. You know, like that's like this sort of Mandela effect. That that this name that she's like colloquially known for is not a not something that's ever uttered. You, you want to know about a Mandela effect? In the original cast recording, they forgot to call the actor who plays Ethel Merman's father. He has one line. The line is, you ain't getting eight cents from me, Rose. They forgot to call the father. So who is on the original cast recording saying that line? I don't know. It is Stephen Sondheim. <laughs> what? I didn't know that. Stephen Sondheim says that line on the original cast recording. He was he <laughs> said he was very angry at Ethel that day, so the frustration you hear in his voice is really method. It's genuine. Acting. Yeah. <laughs> method acting. And he also bungles the line. The line is, You ain't getting eight cents from me, Rose. And he says, You ain't getting eighty eight cents out of me, Rose. Go to a million different productions of Gypsy. Most of them will be saying, "You can't, you ain't getting eighty-eight cents out of me, Rose." <laughs> it's become part oh, his, of the tradition of this show that you say the incorrect line that Stephen Sondheim said on the original cast album. I mean, if Steve Sondheim says an incorrect lyric, is it an incorrect lyric anymore? Yeah, well, that's not a lyric. That's a line Arthur Lawrence wrote, and I'm sure Arthur Lawrence mm. might take you to court over that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I, Arthur Lawrence, if you're listening to the unauthorized... If you're down there, listener. <laughs> Whoa, hey. <laughs> so what is your next note for Gypsy? What comes up after that is Small World, and it would be easy to try to play this number as some kind of seduction, but... What's interesting about Rose uh, is that in this thing you don't you don't get a lot of artifice really like it's like you don't really get an act from her which is interesting I think did 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 you read it as an act? No, she. We'll get into it later, but she's a very genuine Rose. Yeah, which is interesting. It, it's it, I think it's just interesting to get. A genuine rose. Mm-hmm. You know, in the first place. What I want to point out about Small World, and this is also true for, um, You'll Never Get Away From Me, Jack Klugman has more lines than he sings. Yep. Like, some of Herbie's lines that are supposed to be sung. Yeah. yeah. He just says, F, take it. <laughs> he's supposed to sing more. I, I, it's written that he sings more than Jack Klugman sings at this performance. He's fine letting Ethel I, Merman to <laughs> carry the brunt of the load, but if it's something like, Rose, I love you, but don't count your chickens, clearly he has to sing that. But <laughs> the second it's uh, any kind of duet or anything, he's like, I'm out. He might sing yeah. two lines of Small World, and it's supposed to be a duet. <laughs> He 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 does do that a lot. That's for that's for certain. I I just figured that was in fashion with the trends of the time. I suppose I just figured like, oh sure, performers did that. They sometimes trends their of thing, the time, and just... that if it's an Ethel Merman show, it's probably gonna end up with Ethel Merman singing it. I just meant in the terms of uh, if it's if it's a musical, if if it's a musical with like an some sort of like 
actor actor as a main character i figure you get one or the other you get acting or you get vocals from any from like most shows like 50s and earlier mm-hmm. you know and and so i figured this was just like you know one of those like 40s or 50s actors who was still like in the circle before the whole integrated revolution became the absolute norm before everyone had to become a triple threat yes yeah that's what i mean integrated in that sense like in a production sense that's what i thought about his herbie i thought there were good moments of acting though a lot of i will say a lot of herbie stuff just felt very much like oh why you know that 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 was the general tone i got from this herbie am i am i very off it's rose why you gotta go rose Oh, Rose. <laughs> you know, like a frustrated sitcom dad. But... Oh, Rose, you got the dog on the furniture, Rose. Like, that's, that's pretty much how I got. He's not that angry. He he just really gets angry that once. Yeah, but uh, it's not even an Are you okay? Like an Is everything thing. falling apart around you? <laughs> Does it pick up really loud? <laughs> I'm hearing, like, the entire house cave in around you. <laughs> Something unplugged and I've just been trying to fix it. Don't mind me. <laughs> oh, God. There, we're back in business. Oh, good, finally. For once. No, he's not that angry. He's not that no, angry. No, I, I, I don't show. even read it but as like yeah, yeah, yeah. so much. It's like I, I understand that is the leading energy is what you're trying to say. Yeah. I yeah. think he gives, he brings a great variety to his line readings i do think he's a great actor here it's hard for herbie to stand out it's true hard for anyone to stand out in gypsy except sure rose and then we move on and it's the kids scene yes the act we see the act yeah i did have the comment about this that I, I I have no qualms about the kids whatsoever. I I don't I thought they were very good performances. But that being said, the one monologue that Baby June has in this, I swear I swear if I had put a wine glass up to the speaker it would have shattered. And after that we move on to Louise waking everybody up because it's her birthday. And Mr. Kringleine walks yes. in. Mr. Kringleine, the hotel owner, walks in, and again, one of those Ethel Merman jokes. He says, damn, you swore in front of my kids, June, get the Bible, get the Bible! (laughs) (laughs) It's just so angry and filled of resentment, and, you know, it's one of those lines that just go by for most roses. It's the funniest fucking thing, because you realize, Ethel Merman doesn't have a Bible. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Rose has no idea what's in the Bible, but when she needs to yeah. turn to the Bible for a prop, God shall turn to it. <laughs> <laughs> and now that Gosh. we have an adult Louise, it's worth mentioning, Julianne Marie, who replaced Sandra Church, is Louise in this performance. Um, what did you make mm-hmm. of her in the early scenes? Um, Very meek. Like, very... Seemed rather, you know, closed off, quiet, sort of non very attention grabby, but like had a, like a sweetness to her. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, Julia Marie has a very round speaking voice. Yeah. That is something I also noticed. She does enunciate everything, and it is a round speaking voice. It does seem somewhat of a throwback. We do not have people that talk in such tones anymore. And of course, Julianne Marie was married to one of the great speaking voices of all times, James Earl Jones. Oh, I didn't know that. What breakfast must have been like at that house. Do you want waffles? No, I want... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that's what I thought about her. I didn't didn't honestly give too much thought off the top of my head about her, really. Like, I didn't... I I was sort of like, all right, I guess we'll... let's, Let's feel this out. Why don't you move us along? After this, we have... We have Mr. Goldstone enter, and we have the legendary number, Mr. Goldstone, I Love You, which for my money is one of the most fluent comedic solos in all of musical theater. And it's also something that doesn't work as strong as a standalone. You need the 10 seconds before Mr. Goldstone in order to to get to have people laughing throughout the entire thing. You listen to it on its own and you're like, "Oh, this is a fun clever song." You have those 10 seconds of the frenzy and then the sudden stop. Have an egg roll. The audience is is dying from the first line. Mhm. Um, uh, do you like that number? Yes. When done well, it's immaculate. Especially the the entire uh well, what's the line? Is it have a kumquat, Mr. Soy Sauce? Yeah. <laughs> That's one of my favorite lines of all of Sondheim's canon. Have a spare rib, Mr. Soy Sauce. If there are moments I'm not going to like in Gypsy, it's going to be Mr. Goldstone, and it's going to be the act with Caroline, the cow. I think it's all fine right. here. I think it's fine. It moves along. I, I, I found it really entertaining. I, I, really I don't always laugh at it. I don't always find it as funny as it should Well, because be. because most people get the comedy over and done with in the first... Halfway through the first verse. For them, the joke uh, is that done. Is, yeah, that is a good point. I've never realized that yeah. before. Yeah, a lot of productions that do do it, a lot of the people who do play Rose, the joke is the first line, and then all the rest is some other words. There should be a momentum to it. There should be a building. There should be a frenzy. She should be panicked and losing her mind and be saying syllables by the end of it because it's Mm -hmm. just syllables. She's not saying coherent. She's not getting across any coherent thoughts anymore. And so you need that evolution. You so many people play it one note and that's what makes it sort of intolerable because it's the same joke for four minutes. Mm -hmm. But when it's dynamic and when it's fluent and when it progresses, it is fantastic. Mm hmm. That's okay. what I have to say about it. And I think Ethel Merman, I don't think it's, I wouldn't say perfect, but well, I think she, she's very fluent at it. She just lays the number out there. Here it is. And there is something to be said for the audience has never experienced Gypsy before. They don't go in knowing this show. They can laugh yeah. at the number itself because the text has unexpected turns and that entire last verse is unexpected when you know to expect it 
eh, if you're not doing yes. anything, what's the point? I, I, I can very much understand where your apprehension would have come from with that. All right, and why don't you move us along? From that, we go into the very sweet ballad, Little Lamb. Uh, for me, this Little is... Lamb. Little Lamb. You know, this is the song I sing from Gypsy most. Um, really for no other reason than any time I have lamb at dinner, I end up singing the entire fucking thing. <laughs> little cat! That's, little that's so cat. terrifying. Oh, what? I will never have dinner with so you. I will never have dinner with you. <laughs> it, it always comes out of nowhere, too. I don't expect it. And then out of nowhere. <laughs> or is it your that's... birthday, too? That's sincerely terrifying. Like, genuinely. <laughs> I don't want to be assaulted by that. I don't. <laughs> God. <laughs> you horror of a man. You horror. <laughs> and it's always anyway. that key, too. It is, I never expected Yeah, the original key. I was happen. going to say, there's something to the fact that you jumped into the, into the original key that quickly. There was it's always that. breathy. It's always vibrato-filled. Little cat! Little cat! And so this might, this might hit you differently when I say that uh, what Mr. Goldstone is to you is what Little Lamb sort of is to me. Um, oh, every time you have an egg roll, you're singing... No, in the set, no, no. What Goldstone is to you, Little Lamb is to me. Oh. Um, I I completely understand, respect, and appreciate the purpose it serves in the moment. I don't think you could have put a different number in there or a better number in there. I think it's the right number for it. Just as a song, I, I, I it sort of drones for me. Some people, that is their great establishing moment. We'll get to that later, specifically with Laura Benanti. Mm-hmm. It really makes that, that piece yeah. I, I really did like Murgisbird, but Good word. Uh, yeah, a lot of people don't like Little Lamb. I am fine with it. The show is not called Rose. The show is called Gypsy, and if yeah. you are going to call this show Gypsy, your main character has to have an arc, and if she doesn't start that arc on Little Lamb, it's gonna seem a little ridiculous. You're right about that. You're not right about many things, but you're right about that. Um, How dare I am leaving this call. Oh, let's just move on. Sure. Where to? Where to? To an audition? Yes. We have uh, performance number two. Same act, different, uh, different scenery. Broadway, Broadway. Do you like this scene? I think it's fine. I think it serves the same... I feel the exact same way about it as I do about the first. Uh, I do think it, it, it serves as a nice emotional hit, you know, when you're looking at, like, how similar it is, like, how much it is the exact same. I do really appreciate it from that. Here's, here's another question. Is the act any good? I think it had charm. It had charm, and then it stopped having charm. That was what was going for it. Quality was never really a question. It was about charm. So you're saying they grew out of the charm? Very much so. Okay, I would buy that. Yeah. What do you think? Do you think it's a good act? No one in the show seems to think it's a good act besides Rose. Yeah, and 
we learn pretty early on that uh, her t- her taste is sort of clouded by the thought of success. Oh, that's interesting. Do you think that um, you think that her version of success has nothing to do with taste? Yeah, that's what I have. To, that that that's my thought. I think it's not necessarily too much to do with taste. So, we come from there and we go to. Oh no! No 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 no! We skipped. Uh, you'll never get away from me. Oh we, fuck! We skipped the teapot scene. Oh fuck! We skipped the teapot scene. Oh. Jerry is what? in your bath. Is in your bathroom right now. <laughs> the ghost of Jerry's Jerry Robinson is in your bathroom right me. now with a lead pipe. He's gonna beat me to a pulp, and name me to Huac. <laughs> He'll name me to the ghost of Joseph McCarthy. I'll tell you that much. So, yes, this entire scene, we mentioned earlier that You'll Never Get Away From Me is um, another moment of, like, real earnestness on the behalf of Rose. And in which case, in, in which it would make sense to play Small World with that kind of phoniness, charisma, You'll Never Get Away From Me is a song that calls for more earnestness and more, like, stark, frank honesty, you know? And that's that's already off the bat one of this rose's strong suits you know it's that there is earnestness there is sincerity there is like a genuineness like you like you believe her she you you believe that she says everything that she's thinking about and she's conniving and she has like plans and she has like strategies but you know that she says exactly what's on her mind yeah definitely and yeah and so i think this ref- this number reflects that rose cuz someday just like Pack up and walk out. Thank you. That was good. So then we have the act, and then we go into... This is the scene that always sort of glazes over in my head. Like, you know, all the numbers, I feel, sort of feel distinct for me, and, like, I'm able to, like, draw lines between them. In terms of scenes, the Grant Singer's office scene tends to... Like, before before If Mama got was married, the, the, the scene before that tends to sort of glaze me over. I don't know what it is. I can't put a finger on it. Maybe like ju- maybe it's just with the listening experience. I don't remember it glazing me over when I was watching it with the with the one or two times that I have seen like production. The whole like New York is the center of New York scene you're talking yes. about. Yeah, I remember mm. that. I remember that line. That line was probably the most distinct part of it for me. New York is the center of New York. That was the pro- That was the one moment in about the six minutes that really stood out to me. Maybe it's by that point, it's like you've been well, through Dainty Rose, and her farm boys for so long that you're sort of like, Ugh. Yeah, Rose does seem concerned that her children will leave her. Um, foreshadowing. Mm. No matter what they say, children won't listen. I completely got that melody wrong. No matter what you they did. say. There, I redeemed myself. We'll see on the edit if you do. I hate you. <laughs> so, so we have if mama was married we'd live in a house. Um you know this number I thought really went for nothing here. Hi, I I it was I took notes and I specifically took a note that it was pleasant and absolutely nothing more. And it's the last yes. time that we see adult June. Yeah, it is. And if the adult June is not establishing any kind of relationship with Louise, 
it makes the rest of the show harder. Right. I don't think it was bad. I think it was pleasant. I just didn't think, you know? Uh, yeah, that's all I really have to say about it. I don't have too much to say about it in this performance. Okay. And then we go to Tulsa. All yes. I need is the girl. Um, this number is great on an audio only. We can tell so much here about this number and about the performance the actor gives. Well, I can I can tell you this one thing. This guy um, was was shooting for the moon and reached among the stars. You know, his uh, he he has a tendency to sort of like go up for a note and just sort of like go up and like you know shoot that arrow up and whatever it falls down, it falls down. Are you going to at least give an impression of that? Yeah, big town for a world. That like it, it's a lot of those. That's more typical of nineteen fifties musical theater performance. He. That's I, a shame. I would guess that he's one hell of a dancer. Yeah, there's really not much to say. I can't. I can't. Yep. Say anything beyond that. And then sometimes there are difficulties. It is the end of Act One, and we go into. Everything's um, it, coming it, it, up roses. There is the intro. I had a dream, a dream about you, baby. It's gonna come true, baby. They think that we're through, but baby, you'll be swell. And when Merman reaches the release, the entire audience yep. goes nuts. Because yeah. of that entire buildup and the amount of vocal energy and athleticism she brings to that intro leading up to the release... And that is specifically the moment where I devised that whole she is a sprinter. And they are applauding the sprint. It's like we made it. We made it here. Mm-hmm. I think that's mm-hmm. exhilarating. And this is as good a time as any to bring up the fact that many per- people claim Merman can't act. A lot of people that's... claim Merman can't act. What do you think? That's demonstrably false. Good. I agree. Like... I can I can I can tell from from an audio recording that she's an actress. Yes, yes, yes. By the end of this song, you can hear her crying, pretty much. Yeah. And while That's... she is not a modern actress, she's definitely an actress. Stephen yeah. Sondheim, I believe, said they wrote "Everything's Coming Up Roses" so that the focus would be on Herbie and Louise's reactions. And Merman could be Merman. And it turned out that Merman could act in Shades. She was not a detailed actress, but she was a better actress than they anticipated when credit. they wrote this show. Yeah. I, <sighs> she, she really. Is this the best moment in her performance? I don't know. I don't think so, really. I think there are moments of even more significant triumph. I think this is just. It's like it's like a thrilling chapter marking. It's like you're waiting for this one explosion of a number and it comes. And I think that's really really exciting. I don't know if it's like like not to say like oh no, I think I think she falls short. That's absolutely not the case. Um I'd say this is one of the highlights of her performance. I don't know if it's the the peak peak. Well, I'm just uh I guess I'm anticipating the other people were watching too much. And I mean, hmm. while 
we are covering some truly terrific performances. I don't think anyone gets to Merman's level. How could they when it was written for Merman? But it's specifically Everything's Coming Up Roses where she just is... It's Merman. It is a vocal whopper. And she is able to give that to you so well. Yeah, you're very right. Yeah, and then and then an earth-shattering applause. You 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 could tell this was a this was a closing night. Yeah, definitely. And then and then the act is over. And then you have something that's insane to me. You said an an, an attentive audience during um an overture is nuts. I disagree. I think there are a lot of overtures that hook an audience in and make them engaged. To engage an audience during an entr'acte? That is an accomplishment. I have never been in a single theater where an entr'acte was given the time of day. Not once. So hearing that in this recording was thrilling. Really. I I have been in one theater. Um, What's that? I went to see Mac and Mabel at Encores, and what is placed as the overture... In the cast recording of Mac and Mabel is really the entract, and everyone knew it was the entract, and that is one of the great Broadway overtures. So everyone mm. was really tuned into that entract. And then, of course, right. at the end, pictures of Jerry Herman came down. It was very emotional because Jerry Herman had recently passed. But let's get back to Gypsy. So uh-huh. we start and we see the new act, uh, Madame Rose and the Tory Adorables. And what a God, they can't, they can't even front that they're good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just outright blatant that they're terrible to the point, And I had never noticed this in Gypsy before listening to this. She actually says, and Merman really lands this line. I guess it is a pretty rotten act. Hmm. Which a moment, a moment of cogency, a moment of realization I think the moment that sets up the rest of the act to play out nicely, especially how Merman sets it up, I guess it is a pretty rotten act. Later on becomes, well, we're not going to be stars. I guess I have to get married and go be like some people. Which she hates, and that's why she throws Louise onto the stage to go strip. That's later on. But it's really... It's it's like a resignation. This is why people say that Gypsy is the best book, because the script is filled with all of these little details, little lines, that then add up and become, my god. Yeah, you're really right. Arthur Lawrence's book is so thrillingly exquisite. It is so detailed, it's so illuminating. Like, I don't know, it, 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 it illustrates so much, and it gives the actors so much to work with it It gives gives the actors so so much to to work with and it gives the audience so much to ponder you have you have an active relationship there which Mm -hmm. is very nice and i i i i think it's one of the most effective books that's absolutely sure all right Um, why don't you move us along yeah sure we go from there to uh the song together which is another one of those songs that I might be a little bit indifferent about. I'm not as like, you know, I'm not as like, uh, oh, okay, this song, let's move it along. It's just mostly like, um, like you're you're there for dynamics, you're there for the relationships between the characters, and that's pretty much it for me. 
I, I, I get the gist of it in the first verse. What comes after that? Yeah, they show up at the strip joint. Burlesque. Yes. Houses of burlesque. Jesus Christ, I was going to say, like, do you have no respect for these performers? Please, grow for up. Tessie Tura, Mazeppa, and Electra. Uh, it's Madame Mazeppa. It is not Madame Mazeppa. I don't care. You are lying. You are lying. You, you are trying you to be an lying. asshole. You, you are, are trying, trying to be, to be such a Canadian you're, conniving. You're Canadian conniving. That's conniving. what you are. You're, you're conniving. Conniving Canadian maple conniving leaf Canadian bitch. maple leaf bitch. That was fun. Thank you for that. Contemptuous little maple leaf bitch. Why don't you get it tattooed? Um. <laughs> Why don't you get it tattooed? Because anyway. it's what you are. Put it on a tramp stamp. Anyway. I say let's jump right the hell forward to you gotta get a gimmick. Which for my money, I was going, I didn't want to say this to you before the recording. I wanted to like drop it in the podcast and see what your gut punch reaction was to it. This is probably one of the most effective comedic numbers in all of musical theater. I won't argue with you. It's not one of my favorites. Really? Um... It's a great song. I could understand. It's a great song. Undoubtedly. I could understand. Uh, I could understand the argument of like maybe it going on a bit, but that's at the same my time, issue. that is my issue with it. I think, but what I think this has, like, whereas where I think a song like Together goes on, what I think is g- about you got to get a gimmick is that something new happens every now and then. It goes on, but that, but it goes on into a reveal. It goes on into each one of the bits, and I think those bits are genuinely so funny. That's another thing. When was the last time an orchestration has made you audibly laugh? An orchestration. Just the the, the timpani hit had me cackling uh-huh. every single okay, time. Yeah. <laughs> that was the piece of orchestration I've never had, like, yeah, like, it. That that's a joke. That falls both onto the visual aspect of it and also the orchestration. And the fact that you can get... Boom. Yeah. Boom. The fact that you can get what should be a sight gag through an audio Uh is so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Genuinely, it is one of the great comedic numbers. I do want to mention one thing before you gotta get a gimmick. They uh-huh. arrive at the house of Burlesque, and Herbie is out front. He comes around, and he says <laughs> something along the lines of, I tried to get my own line. They wouldn't give us the own line on the billing. So what I got them to do is put a box around our name. Oh, <gasps> Arthur. Oh, Arthur. Do you know what that is in reference to? Sort of, I think, but... But exp- put it put it in your words. In contractual negotiations of West Side Story, Jerome Robbins demanded that his credit read conceived, directed, and choreographed by Jerome Robbins, and not only would his name be in its own line, his name would be surrounded by a box. And Arthur Lawrence, <laughs> not being able to help himself has made fun of the fact <laughs> that Jerry bitch. Robbins has a box around his name in Gypsy, which Jerry Robbins continued to have a box around his name for the rest of his career. Golly. He's making fun of Jerry Robbins in a show that Jerry Robbins is directing. 
<laughs> I don't have a problem with that. Not a, and not I believe, one. and I believe Steve Sondheim said, you know, it's supposed to be a joke. It always landed like a lead weight until Leonard Bernstein showed up in the house, and then you heard one person <laughs> laughing their ass off. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Uh huh. Yeah. Oh gosh. <laughs> it's just Arthur. You, you, Arthur Lawrence can't help himself, and that's really Arthur Lawrence's life story. So anyway, <laughs> you gotta get a gimmick, and then we move on to really the last couple of scenes of Gypsy, and this is where it stakes its claim of if you claim that Gypsy is the best musical ever written, you are most likely talking about these four scenes specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Um, so, we it turns out with... the star yeah. stripper has been arrested down the street for soliciting. Rose overhears this and she says, my daughter can do it. My daughter will do the strip and she makes a point of it's the star spot that means a star salary and she comes back into the room she has offered her daughter up sexually to be objectified without her daughter's mm. consent and Ethel Merman comes into the room and says I always promised my daughter we'd be a star and what is so heartbreaking is that she could not be more genuine in that moment yeah. That is what is great about Ethel's performance. She could not be more honest, more genuine. You realize Ethel Merman has promised this girl she would be a star. Ethel Merman is someone who makes good on her promises. And so to make good on her promise, she has offered her daughter up for the star spot to go strip. And she thinks it is the greatest thing in the world because her daughter is going to be a star. She is vindicated. She has made good on her promise. Her daughter is now a stripper. And then there is the Rose and Herbie fight. And I think this is really the scene where we realize who Ethel Merman's Rose is. Rose asks Herbie, why does everyone walk out? And a lot of Roses ask this question... And it's something she says. She has an inkling why. Ethel yeah. Merman asks, why does everybody walk out? And she doesn't know. She's completely clueless. She is completely clueless. She is genuinely asking, what am I doing wrong? This keeps happening. Is the problem me? This can't be me. Tell me what I am doing wrong. Which, again is heartbreaking and it's also the fact that no one has seen gypsy no one knows what to expect every other rose that enters this role enters with an expectation everyone knows she's going to be conniving everyone knows she has an agenda ethel merman didn't have an agenda mm -hmm. ethel merman is just genuine and she genuinely doesn't know why people walk out and no one after Ethel Merman can play the role this genuinely. No one can play the role unknowingly is really what it comes down to. Ethel Merman is completely unknowingly. unknowing. That's a good way to put it. She, she's completely unknowing. She just doesn't know why people walk out. She promised her daughter she'd be a star. She got her the star spot. God, this is the best thing. She is honestly trying to do the best for her children. Mm -hmm. and of course 
the moment where I point to if someone says Ethel Merman can't act, Herbie walks out and she screams back at him, you go to hell. And there are some real tears there. Like, not even fake uh-huh. tears. You can tell there are real tears. This is a real actress having a moment. Yeah. <sighs> what did you make of the scene? Electrifying. It's this, it's it's an eruption. It's something like you've been tense, you've been on your seat, sort of, like, for the past few minutes. Like, ever since they've come in here, you're like, oh, okay, they're in an they're in an environment. Wow, they've 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 sunk this low. Like that's something that to that's something to note, and to see to see Rose sort of like not concede that, but like to like almost to. I don't think she realizes that, that she's sunk. So, yeah. True. All she hears is "star." This is what I promised my daughter. Like I hadn't, I hadn't seen it specifically like that till you mentioned it, and I'm like, still like really considering the weight of that and the implications. Like, yeah, it is. It is just devastating. It is just heartbreaking. It's, and you, you, you see, you see for the first time, she's realizing things are slipping out of her fingers. Well, and also, my daughters come first. They always will is another <laughs> it seems genuine with Ethel she is doing this for her daughter her daughters do come first it's not something to just say to get back at Herbie for leaving yeah it's a genuine statement of her humanity such that it is yeah I, I don't think we will encounter another mother who is so misguided yeah and honestly believes that she's misguided. Which leads us right. to the ending. To jump all the way to the ending. I guess I did do it for me. That's a complete realization for Ethel. She doesn't really know that she did it for her. It was never about her. And yeah. she guesses that somewhere in her psyche, she's honestly questioning herself. Maybe I did do it for me. In other roses, that's, of course you did it for yourself. We knew that from the second we walked in. Well, if you don't know the text, and if you have Ethel Merman on the stage, and Ethel Merman is that genuine, it does end with a discovery of, I guess, I did do it for me. That's what I think is so fantastic about it. It's the discovery. Um, but from there, we do have we have the, the striptease. We have Gypsy become herself. I'll let you. I'll let you start off with that one. Because I know you were mentioning sort of like that, that tracking that process earlier. This is the least written the strip will be throughout the entire production. All of the productions that we will cover. Um, as each production goes on, lines get added. You see more scenes or the locations become more specific. And that is because apparently Jerome Robbins did an initial strip that ran in the first full run through and people believed it was too raunchy. Mm. So they started cutting things out and Jerry Robbins said, I will come back. I will fix it later. He never came back to fix it. <laughs> they kind of just cut away and this is what landed. This is what left with the number. I saw an interviewer, Sandra church was asking 
she blamed herself for it never getting fixed. She said she thought it never got fit. The number never got fixed because she wasn't a dancer. So Jerry Robbins wouldn't give her the time of day. Golly. But we do, we can tell that Gypsy's confidence is growing. And this is the scene where we, she stops becoming Louise and becomes Gypsy. They give her the name Gypsy Rose Lee. Right. I think Julianne Marie does it well. Yeah. You're able to like, you're even just vocally, you're able to pick up where that shift happens. You're able to notice like, Oh, okay. Some, something's like taking over now. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's really fascinating. It's really, really interesting to, to be able to recognize within a performance, you know, I, I, yeah, like it, it, it's just that the, the stripping of the shell, (laughs) well, I didn't mean that on purpose. Uh, (laughs) It's you're like in real time experiencing someone become themselves, and and was I correct? Was that the, was that the moment? Was that I remember seeing out Louise was used after the first scene. Was that where it was used again? Yes, at the very beginning. That was but the I, first time I'd ever. That was the first time I'd ever noticed that line was used there. No, it's uh, I believe it's sing out baby, not sing out Louise. Oh, okay. Well, but it uh, is used sorry, again. Like sing out at all. But yeah, that was that was again. that was the first time it's ever really like hit me, you know. Hmm. That was the first time it's ever struck me like that. Yeah, no, kind of. She's always going to be a little kid to her mother. Yep. You that never this get is older. this is to remind that this is just another chapter to her. This is the same old routine. This is the same old gig. This is all it is to her. Mm-hmm. It's it's this again. Uh, and, and that's a lot to take in. Then we go to the famous dressing room scene. I thought it was well performed here, but I didn't really take any notes. Yeah, I understand that. But, like, here's what I always track. My my definitive Louise moment for me, I'm able to sort of surmise how a Louise sort of gets themselves across with the final monologue. I am Gypsy Rosalie, and I love her, and if you don't, you can just clear out that monologue? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this one, in this performance, I don't know if this will, if you will feel the same way about it as I do, but it sounded like begging. It sounded like yeah. like a yeah. begging on her on her behalf to go, please, please let me be. I'm begging you. Well, and it also aligns with Ethel Merman thinks she's doing the best thing for her kids. So can her kids then be that angry in response? They want her out of... Gypsy wants her out of her life. She wants her to leave her alone so that she can become an adult. Which which points into the thing that you just said of she's always a kid to her mother. Oh my god, that does track. Yes, yes there you go. Oh! I just got so excited. <laughs> we have fun here. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yes. like, I, yeah, I, that I, is I, the interpretation. There we go. Uh huh. I, I, and I think that's just dandy. Like, I, 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 I really like that here. I know that you can go in like various directions with it. I am. We will see it go in a million excited. directions. Yeah, I I am already just way excited to to get into the most recent Broadway revival because I got thoughts about that one. 
And, and can I say? Yes, you can. Whether or not Gypsy is the best show ever written, that dressing room scene is the best dialogue scene ever written for a Broadway show. That I will say without hesitation. Yeah? Yes. Fair enough. Do you agree? I I don't have a reason to argue with you. Sure. Like, yeah, I, I will not fight you on that. We'll get into the movie. They changed a lot for the movie. That scene stays... They realize they can't do any better. <laughs> that stays pretty much word for word. It's a pretty good show, honestly. Now that I'm thinking about it, it's a pretty good show. <laughs> You're just realizing that? <laughs> like, now that... Like, like at this point, I'm, like, really starting to figure out, like, uh, hey, there's something here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And this thing has potential. <laughs> well, and that's something here. Then now we move into Rose's turn. This, I, I, okay, okay. I wasn't expecting this. I think at, at some point you so immediately expect like, oh, okay, you have Rose's turn. Probably, no, I'm going to say it. The best 11 o'clock number that has ever been written. For a musical you have ethel merman the originator of the role the most legendary you almost like build it up in your head like you build it up like it's gonna be this magnanimous thing and so you're almost like your expectations are so high you're like expecting, okay it's gonna be mirac- it's gonna be marvelous miraculous yeah like this is gonna be an, yeah i was surprised at how much fragility leaked through i hmm. was blown away by this it's be- like because you have this like passion and this stubbornness and you have this um cathartic releasing of all these things that have been pent up inside but even throughout it you see these like insecure cracks it's not this complete brazen 100 percent uh foot on the pedal this is me look at me aren't i so good aren't i so great you see that like you see the you see the crumbling of the pyramid from mm-hmm. earlier on than, than, than Mama's Gotta Let Go, which is for most people the tipping point. You see it early on. What do you have to say about Ethel Merman's Rose's turn? She gives them hell, Eth. <laughs> yep. Yep. It's just, it, it is an accomplishment that is beyond words. I agree. And then. But yeah, it, 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 it's a triumph. And then they have to let her have applause, which they did not want. And Oscar Hammerstein came in and said, you have to let them oh, applaud yeah. Ethel because she has not had much to sing. And they will not sit and they will not listen to your final scene if they can't applaud Ethel after that song. And if Ethel can't take a bow after that song. Yeah, It was this like distorted cacophonous sort of like, you know, destruction at the end of it instead of having a big old button and if any because he thought that would impress oscar hammerstein he he had thought that uh oh hammerstein does all these things he breaks the conventions he's gonna see me breaking this convention i'm not gonna let there be a button it's gonna it's gonna speak to this sort of breakdown he's gonna be so impressed and then he was so flabbergasted to hear that he disagreed and he he said what is my one of my favorite quotes of all time sometimes a theatrical truth takes precedence over a logical one. And I think that's a really fantastic thing to 
emphasize because mm-hmm. yeah sure it's a logical truth that there would be some sort of breakdown that makes perfect sense but then your audience is sitting there waiting for waiting for the chance to applaud Ethel and tell her how good she was they were all waiting for the countdown to the curtain they weren't really paying attention to the scene since they've had the chance to explode all that energy and give Ethel her roses um <laughs> no pun intended they're able to be attentive Rotten. and focus on that last scene rotted rotted you are rotted i disagree Decaying. i disagree <laughs> moldy whatever give ethel whatever. merman her roses the other story with gypsy is that they played the act one closer for jerry robbins and he asked everyone's everything's oh, coming yeah. up roses what everything's coming up roses <laughs> what her name is Rose. Everything's coming up. Rose is what? And Sondheim's response is, Jerry, if anyone else makes that mistake, I will change it. But I am defending this right now. I'm not going to change it. <laughs> I have spent too long looking for this line. It is perfect. I'm not changing it right now. So we get the yeah. final scene. And this final scene gives you the impression that... um. Well, Ethel Merman's going to a lovely party. Sure. She's Ethel Merman. She goes on. She's even wearing a fur by the end of this show. <laughs> she starts off in higher graces than before. Uh-huh. Um, Her daughter's a star. A... She used some very weird techniques to get there, but she gets to go to a party in a fur. Yeah. And what what do you think that speaks to? What do you think that... What do you think is the weight of that? I think the weight is that Gypsy here is still a star vehicle. It's a musical comedy, it's a star vehicle, and it's an Ethel Merman show more than anything else here in this production. So at the end, you don't necessarily follow the character's journey. You follow that Ethel Merman always wins. So you see it as a hasty... I don't mind it, but... But you don't don't think it's very... um... Lot, I guess lot. It's rooted in the theatrical truth that we are watching Ethel Merman on stage more than it is rooted in the character of Rose. I think, though not the intention of the ending, I think that ending has been played to different and greater effect. Yes. I like like I like when productions recontextualize in it. One of the productions that we're going to talk about is gonna is gonna have a really fantastic version of that. I won't spoil it, but. I think we both know which one I'm talking about. Because you haven't watched that many yet, yeah. <laughs> well, that too. <laughs> and then it's Curtain. And that's Gypsy. That's 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 Ethel Merman's Gypsy. So, button Ethel Merman's Gypsy up in a line. Quick line. Five second sound clip. One of the most thrilling things to ever exist on a Broadway stage. Good. I agree. That's a good enough line for me. Cool. And we've pretty much covered everything we can about that production, and so uh, let's go on to the other thing that you and I both uh, listened to this week, which is the first Broadway revival in 1974 with an all-British 73. Cast, I believe. 73. 73, sorry. Sorry. Uh, well, and this recording is from 74. Not, uh, the recording is from 74. It is not a British cast. Oh, I thought I because it's the same cast as the, the three, uh, West End production. No, 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 no. The um. So Herbie, Louise, 
Rose, Baby June, I believe, are all from London. Right. That's it. Okay. Uh, I guess th- there's not there's not much on the side I'm using. There's not much detailed information about the 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 pre Broadway West End productions cast beyond those four characters. So, um, I'm not too skilled on that front. But, yeah, all um, of the bit players are completely different in the West End. With 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 a British principal cast. Well, which... no, it's not even fair to say that because. Angela Lansbury has dual citizenship. Zan Charisse is American. Um, Rex Robbins is American. Oh. They're all Americans. Oh. They just went to London. So okay, so it's so it's just that it was a a London cast. It was a cast. It, this from, was the th- from a London. Production. This production ran in London with the same leads before coming to America. And actually, this will be important in a future episode it toured before then coming to broadway for a limited run it only ran for four months on broadway it was always intended so to be more, a limited so it run more, it yeah. was more of a tour stop than yeah anything it toured it did an extended tour stop on broadway and i think they went back out on the road after that yeah they did i know that uh, there's a story on the internet about her being about her doing uh, gypsy in florida after broadway well, she also continued um, to do it in summer stock. I actually didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do you want to go through the same deconstruction point by point with? We uh, we're just gonna stop where we have notes. We don't need to go okay, um, that thoroughly through the show. So I'm gonna let you spearhead uh, the the beginning for this one. So so we start off with um, we start off with the overture. Um, it is important to note, this just shows you what a revival was at the time. The music director and conductor of Angela Lansbury's Gypsy was Milton Rosenstock. Mm-hmm. The conductor and musical director of Ethel Merman's Gypsy was Milton Rosenstock. Hmm. It's the same musical director and also it is the exact same guy playing the first trumpet. And doing the licks in the overture. Uh Uh-huh. They went back and they found the same guy. Uh Uh-huh. Wow. When you did revivals, you didn't come up with a brand new production. You went and you presented the show. The show was the show. You might do a couple things that have changed, but you're really just doing some version of the original production. So we have the original music director. We have the original trumpeteer. We have the original costume designer did the costumes for Angela Lansbury's production. It is not directed by Jerry Robbins, though. It is directed by Arthur Lawrence, the book writer, who will Hmm. direct three different productions that we're about to watch this one included yeah. it's actually really interesting now that we talk about that i will say one thing right off the bat is that listening to this audio of the broadway revival my thought was okay i really think i need to see what this looked like i think i really need to watch these performances yes do you, do you, do you, did you get that uh, yeah, we will get into why there were a couple moments where I really thought that. Um, but just starting with the overture, the audience applauds every damn song every theme. in the overture. Every theme. 
every yeah. theme. And it speaks to what gypsy means to these people at this point. It is <laughs> so synonymous a show, and every song is known that you applaud every time the song comes up in the overture. Already it's, like, seeped into the iconography. Uh, the, the, uh, the, um, what's not iconography? What's the word I'm looking for? It's seeped no, into iconography the, the, is like right. The, like a cultural diaspora, you know? Like, it's already... Subconscious. Cultural subconscious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like that. I like that phrase. Um, the show would have been out for 15 years by now. Mm-hmm. Now, you have, um, you had a comment about Sing Out Louise. This one sort of tells you about how this rose is going to be. Uh, so, so we're in the middle of, uh, let me entertain you. I can do some tricks. Sing out, Louise! She screams it as, as if she's being submerged into quicksand. And I think... This is indicative of Angela Lansbury's Rose, which is she is at 100% all of the time. Um, Her strong suit is not dynamics. She carries the same intensity throughout the entire show. She doesn't let it dip. She doesn't let it rise. It It goes 100. And so it's like in one, like you, you were mentioning a sprint earlier. Mm -hmm. This is like, this is like a I would I would call it a car chase. It's like you have your gas firmly on the pedal and you are revving through this thing. I think that can and sometimes does come to a detriment. And I think that it would be easy for an audience member to get tired of it, of the portrayal at some point if it is going at that intensity for so long without hesitation. Which maybe if there are different physical dynamics at play, that's not a yeah. concern, but we only have the audio. I, I, I'm i going to say what just what I know off the audio, and then I'm going to maybe share some thoughts about what I've seen after seeing a quick clip of her performance. Yeah. I will say that in terms of not having that, like having that same intensity from the audio, what I was able to ascertain, I think she just about pulls it off. I mm-hmm. think that she's able to make it work. Uh, and I think a big part of that is probably her Rose's turn, which I have a lot of thoughts about and want to get into. But I think I think like I, I think she's just about able to make it work. I think it would be very easy to make that mistake and then not be able to pull it off. Uh, like for example, something with like a like in in Ethel Merman's audio, the entire section of the thing where it's like, uh, where do you, what were you doing? Vaudeville. Where? The Vatican? Like, that entire section. Ethel Merman plays that contemplative and considering, which is not something that comes often in her portrayal. It's like it's like there's a real moment of, like, okay, what's, what's the layout? What is the opportunity? Tell me about it. Like, you know, it's mm-hmm. something that sort of throws you off. You're like, oh, okay, this is a significant moment. Angela sort of barrels through that. She doesn't, she doesn't, pause for dynamic she, she carries that exact same intensity that she has been doing for two hours and that's one of the moments where i think it's sort of that's one of the detrimental moments something like that where it's like you don't let yourself go on that journey you are just the same from the beginning to the end whereas ethel merman has this sort of earnestness i feel like angela just sort of has like a motor mouth quality to her i get the impression that angela's rose can't stop herself it's like it's like she just is a rambling train and someone needs to like physically interrupt her in order for her to be able to stop, you know? Oh, yeah, that's interesting. 
That's I what I think. I hadn't considered that. Um, the first yeah. moment that tips you off that you're about to see a very different gypsy, don't you dare laugh. Hmm. Very first scene, she's talking to um, Uncle Jocko. Uh, yeah. She's talking to Uncle can Jocko. I, can I, mm-hmm. This is a complete random, this has nothing to do with the point you're about to make. It's going to come up at some point in these recordings, and I feel like I need to tell you it. Can I share something with you? You played Uncle Jocko. No, I have never been in Gypsy. I'm going to be honest with you. The first time I watched Gypsy, I thought Uncle Jocko was Herbie. Because the movie fucked you up because the movie conflates the two and turns the two into one character. Yeah, I very much thought that was just the case. And I very much thought that, like, in the story of Gypsy, Uncle Jocko was Irby. And then no. I've no. I've slowly pieced together that that is not the case. No, that is not the case at all. <laughs> yeah, I just I I figured that had to come out eventually and that you should know. Well, we will cover the movie. We'll talk about that. <laughs> But the first, when she turns to Uncle Jocko and says, don't you dare laugh, it's dark, and you realize, okay, this is someone that is going to act her way through Rose, and acting is going to be the leading force behind her. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree with Whereas, very much so. Whereas, the that. leading force behind Ethel Merman is Ethel Merman, and she does act. This one is she like, oh, we're going to, we're sing, going to see but some acting It's Ethel here. Merman. This one, okay, we're really going to consider the dialogue. For me, it was like, we're going to see something very passionate. And we're going to see someone like, oh, really pour their entire energy into this one. Like, we're going to see them, like, transform themselves. That's that's the impression I got. I don't, I don't think all, all of the dialogue, so, which is surprising, it's an Arthur Lawrence revival. I don't think all of the dialogue was the most carefully considered. No, but you know, she, uh, her, she, she specifically. That that's what I mean. Like a lot, I don't think oh. all of her dialogue was the most carefully considered. Really, I think there are like there are definite moments, but I think the, there Maybe was an overall character. Yeah, it, I think there was an overall characterization, and we only listened to her and didn't get the full. Yeah, it was. I think it might have it might have distracted. I think maybe that might. I'll. I'll Give it the benefit of the doubt and say that maybe I was distracted by it. Okay. Uh, I will say that there is about 12 minutes of color video footage of Angela Lansbury in this production. Like, during, during I think it was a preview performance. And you see how she moves around the stage, and you see how she carries herself through Uncle Jocko's scene. And after listening to the audio, you go, Oh... Okay, I get it now. I get, I get the intention. It's which is which is very flippant. Uh, oh, oh, I'm oh, we're all just so great. Uh, oh, this is great to be here. Oh, look at all this. Oh, I'm gonna come here. I'm gonna I'm gonna dip my toe a little bit in this. Oh, hello, hi, how are you? Nice to meet you. Hi, nice. Like like very outgoing. Very um assumes that she deserves to be where wherever she is it's not like an entitled thing it's just like a, oh i'm here well i guess i'll make myself comfortable it's <laughs> that kind of way you know mm-hmm. what i mean uh yeah. it's like she intrudes and just expects everything to fall down around her she walks through life as though 
everything is going to go according to the plan that she's set out for everything in life to happen. It's like she expects everyone to follow suit. Hmm. It's 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 heavy main character syndrome. It's like a disarming kind of commanding. It's not like an intimidating commanding, but it's like it's the kind of intrusiveness. You know? Mhm. And you, and I think I think the uh, having just an audio might disadvantage that because I don't think you get that from just hearing her. Um, yeah. Yeah. But that was mainly the thing I wanted to say. Like she just stands up and goes. She'll hand the dog to a person and she'll walk to the to the conductor and just do it with a smile on her face. Like she knows like this is the plan and it's going according to exactly how she imagined it. Okay. Whereas Ethel's Rose is someone who is fighting to make her truth exist. Angela's is one that believes her truth is what exists. Hmm. And just goes about life hmm. according. I hadn't thought about it like that, but I would agree. Yeah. So my next note is with have an egg roll, Mr. Goldstone, which I mm-hmm. just said this episode is not one of my favorite numbers. It has never been more entertaining than it is here. I don't yeah. know what it is. I just was thrilled to bits. It was fun. It was funny. Angela really, Dame Lansbury really comes up with a list on the fly. And you can tell, you know, she's not just singing out a list that's pre-planned. She is finding these words as they come to her. And because she's such a frantic rose, that's when the lyrics start messing up. True, true. I hadn't, uh, I hadn't, like, really remembered it that strongly. But now that you do mention it, I am very much seeing it like that. I just thought it's the best that Goldstone has worked for me personally. <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't have that much to say about it in that sense, but um, I want to carry on to, I actually do want to carry on to little lamb. Okay. Um, because I think this Louise is fantastic. I think this Louise is absolutely lovely. This so Zan Sharice, who plays Louise. Yes. This is the performance I felt like I had to see. Yeah. Because she sounds so young in these early yes. scenes. She sounds like an absolute baby. And I don't mean you're a little baby. I mean she sounds yeah. like a babe. Yeah. A young kid. And then by the end, I don't know how she does it. She does sound like an adult by the end of the show, but I don't know how the two bridge, and I don't know how she progresses. It had to be something physical that you had to watch. I agree. Like, I almost got worried that she sounded too young at the beginning, and I thought she'll never make that transition. It somehow happens by the end of the show. I don't know how. I didn't see it, but it had to be visual. I will say that... that, 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 that... I still found that sort of transition effective through this audio format. Though I will agree, the the growth that does take place, I think, is a, a, like a fantastic development. And it's like you you wonder, like, oh my god, like how does she do it? How does she carry herself? You want to see more. You want to watch it develop. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in those early scenes, her voice is so powerful. Isn't the right word, but her it's so solid. It has such a solid foundation to it, and it's so, like, 
It's such a lovely singing voice. It's so sweet. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I sort of fell in love with her, Louise. I sort of like, I really empathize for her. I really, I loved her. And I thought it was a really genuine, it, it, it felt like a really genuine, honest, touching and facade-less portrayal. Yeah, that's what I want to say about Little, Little Lamb. Okay. On from there, do you have anything? Uh, what's the next point you want to make? I'm looking at this list and nothing's really jumping back out to me. Then we're at the end of Act One, and there's something really interesting that I think happens here. What's that? The boys say that they're leaving. There's something funny going on here. June, don't give Louise, don't give me one of your poems. You know, June wrote this. Read this, mother. And it comes out that June has eloped with Tulsa. Yeah. Rex Robbins, as Herbie, immediately starts yelling at Rose to come with him and live a normal life. And there is a desperation there that signifies to me he knows exactly how Rose is going to react to that letter. Yeah. Yeah. He knows exactly where this is going. I, that's an interesting shading from Herbie I have never seen from any of the other Herbies. Herbie is somewhere able to anticipate Rose's actions and reactions to everything. And he knows how of she's course. going to react. He knows that Louise is going. she's going to turn around and try and pull Louise into the star spot. And he is trying to shake her out of her speeding car chase. Speeding car chase. I like yes. that. That's useful here. She's. He is trying to shake her out of that. And he just can't do it. Mm. I've never seen a Herbie react like that. Where he's not just trying That's to a- sell Rose on come marry me and live a happy life. He is screaming at her, it's time to set this aside. Yeah. And I think and that, almost like he sees I think, this is the way for him to get out because he knows he's not strong enough. And later on, he says, you know, my impression of being a worm, uh, my impression of being a worm, not a man. Yeah. He knows that he won't be able to stand up to her, but right now is an His- easy out. Please, let's leave all of this behind. His Herb, Herbie was the first time I'd really noticed that one line about uh, where, like when when he leaves, when he mentions like I need to pre- something about him. He says I need to pretend to be a man, or like, mm-hmm. like I need to try or something like that. Like that was mm-hmm. his. That was that was the time where it really stood out to me. That was where it was mm-hmm. distinct because you felt like he was just like like pleading for his own sanity almost. And and I agree with you that I think it very much carries through in that moment. I hadn't even noticed, I hadn't clocked that at all. But now that you mention it, it makes so much sense. Um, I think I, again, I was off put because you just have these two characters who are both they both have their foot on the gas in that moment. Uh, one has been building up this entire time, another is just like specifically in this moment. I think that disarmed me a little bit. But now that you mention it, I think I I never saw it like that, and I think that's brilliant. And, um, then, and then she has everything's coming up roses. Which, we gotta be honest, she sounds ragged during that number. She sounds better during the second act. And yeah. it's not bad vocalism, but she does sound 
tuckered out. She does sound ragged, which points to something that I said to you, but not on the podcast yet. You are either born with a rose voice or you make do. Mm. Yeah. And very, very few people are born with rose voices. Angela Lansbury has to make do. I think she make she does makes do make does make did <laughs> make an elk. Um, Good word. She handles it very well, but it points to it's a lot for her. Yeah, vocally to handle. Well, you know, she she has moments that I think make up makes up for that one. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, um, it is also interesting. Her everything's coming up roses is so optimistic. You don't get yeah. that she's delusional. You get that she's very optimistic in her reality, and her reality and, and that, actual reality are not the same thing with this rose. Exactly. That that that's a great piece of consistency where mm-hmm. she it's you can absolutely read it as that. Well, don't worry, guys. This isn't this. This isn't the plan. When the plan happens, then we're good. The plan's coming. It's this is uh, meant to be. This is reality. This is it's a happy story, not a sad one. There's nothing to be Which, sad about the ha- and you're like you know I haven't even like she's so really talked mm-hmm. through that, but talking through that now it makes a lot more sense when we start talking about her bows. Yeah, which right. we'll get to. But right, of course. There's a yeah no the silence was deafening. Uh-huh. This is a rose that just has her own reality, her own world, and it isn't related to everyone else in the show. Yes, and that's and that and and Herbie's trying pleading to get through that wall. It's like he he's he's screaming to permeate that. He's like trying to invade that like mental block she has. And it's fruitless, but he can't do it. Yep. So we go into act two. There's a line. Why do you make Louise wear this blonde wig? And the line in response is it makes her look more like a star. Ooh. Cutting. Well, here's the thing. I was very disappointed here with Angela Lansbury in this line because every person that has played the role has made something of it makes her what the line is the subtext is it makes her look more like June. And yeah, of course. Every actress, including Merman, does it makes her look more like like a star. They do some kind of pause. They do some kind of signifier. Yeah. Angela Lansbury just says the line out flatly and doesn't really make anything of it, which I thought was that's very that's indicative of most odd. of her performance. That's 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 my recurring issue, I suppose. I don't really have much to say beyond it. More than like, I don't know. Feels like <laughs> it's not totally right, but it feels like one of those like I told you so. Like more more like. More in the sense of like, yeah, that's that's exactly what I'm saying. It's it's that the entire time. Well, she has some nice lines. She has some nice moments. Sure. But that one was glaring to me. Yeah. And then what we go the to, to we go to um together wherever we go. And I believe uh-huh. there's a new verse. 
that they've added to the song here. They've they've added they've added a uh, a lot to the song. They've like here's, they've padded it out. Here's more. my question: yeah. There are clearly some new dance arrangements. Yeah, the dance breaks are longer. There's maybe some more dancing, but specifically this song has a lot more dance dancing. Very different dance arrangements. Um, you'll never get away from me. Also has a more extended dance break. The dance arrangements on the original production are credited to John Kander, which we know that is true. John Kander, before he mm-hmm. got with Fred Ebb, he was the person... When a composer comes in... I'm trying to think of a good example of this. All I need is the girl. Julie Stein and Stephen Sondheim likely came in with... And if she'll say, my darling, I'm yours, I'll throw away my striped tie and my best press tweed. All I really need is the girl. And that's all they will have written. Everything from that point on is done by a dance arranger. Right. And those dance arrangements are by John Kander. Now I'm looking here on IBDB. For this revival, it's still crediting dance arrangements to John Kander. No one else is listed. So you think he fleshed out some more for this? I don't know if it was something else that someone else did. I don't know if Milton Rosenstock decided to add to the dance arrangements. I'm interested to see if he actually did come back and add more. I, My guess is no. He's John Kander by this point. But I'm interested to see who created all this extra dance music. It's good. Mm-hmm. I just wish I knew who it was. And it also gets uh-huh. at... Angela Lansbury is a dancer, so she can have True. more extended dance breaks. And if you're not necessarily giving an Ethel Merman vocalist, maybe you do want a rose that gives some extra dancing here. Yeah. Um, I guess if you, you got to play to the strengths, right? If, mm-hmm. if, if you're going to not be born with the rose voice, you, you should find another way to showcase that passion and that not well, i don't know if it's passion well and it, or anything but it's like to your strengths you have to showcase your strengths and it says a lot for the show that it's a show that can withstand many performers different strengths yeah true and Very showcase good. them off in different ways and then i guess that's really all i have to say about the moment i i, I don't know if you have like a lot more or anything but i really don't have anything to say till uh just after you gotta get a gimmick okay the next thing I want to point out is Herbie asks Rose to marry him. And her response is, not while we're in burlesque. <laughs> no one else gets a laugh on that number. Even Ethel Merman, who got the most laughs at all, does not get a laugh at that number. Angela Lansbury absolutely kills with that moment. The entire house, you would have thought that Eddie Cantor was alive again and telling jokes. <laughs> It's just the funniest <laughs> thing they've ever heard. Oh, that was a good one. She just... And that's why, yeah, she does find other things. I don't want to just dismiss that she's not considering the dialogue. It's a very True. specific approach to the role, but she does find some things other people don't find. And then the next thing I want to point out is lovely Tony winner Mary Louise Wilson. She plays Tessie Tura, and God, is she a breath of fresh air. I've never heard someone 
make those tessitura lines sound so natural and funny and really discover each of them as they come up yeah great acting moments from mary louise wilson and of course she goes on to win a tony she's one hell of an actress not for this show but as she should well yeah of course did this go up for any tonys being a limited run that is the other thing that is interesting to point out ethel merman did not win the tony award for gypsy angela lansbury won the tony award for gypsy Huh, really? Uh Uh-huh. Ethel Merman lost to Mary Martin in Sound of Music. And the famous Ethel Merman quote is, you can't buck a nun. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Nope, Angela Angela Lansbury, that's the other thing. The show was closed by, had been closed for months by the Tony Awards. And Angela Lansbury Mm -hmm. still won a Tony for Best Actress. So what is anyway? What is your next comment? So she has this moment with Herbie, right? Like she has fracturing moment where, like you know, they they split. And well, even before that, for the first time, I thought it was genuinely shocking. Here, more than anything else, I thought it was absolutely shocking. When she offered Louise to strip. Yeah. And that was the first time I saw her character, or it's the first time her rose appeared to me to be completely delusional. And I think part of that Mm. is because she is Dame Angela Lansbury. There is a certain amount of class associated with her, which we will talk about whether or not that works for the role. But... For this Rose to degrade herself and to degrade her daughter by offering her up to strip. Yeah. Really shocked me. Again, that fiery conviction that like, I was just saying, it's that, it's that complete blind certainty that she carries about her that I think is what drives that home. It drives home like, wow, she genuinely just does fucking whatever, huh? Like she, like she will shut her eyes and let it happen. If it, if it leads to this conclusion that she set out for herself. Well, and back to the moment of Herbie yelling at Rose in act one, we get to the confrontation scene between Herbie and Rose. She enters that confrontation scene. Like, you knew this was going to happen. Don't act brand new. Don't act surprised. You know me. Almost like she had heard Herbie yell at her and decided it wasn't useful, so she pushed it aside at the time. Herbie then is saying, I'm leaving, and she's saying, no, 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 you don't get to leave now. You knew this was going to happen. You know me. You anticipate me. You should have anticipated. This was exactly how this ends. Mm-hmm. Which, I think this is the scene where Angela Lansbury stakes her claim and really comes into her own as Rose. Yeah. Completely unexpected. And then that's immediately followed with that uh, small world reprise, which is the one moment of fragility. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because it's the one 
the most significant break from her expected reality. And it plays off what you said, where it's like, you knew, you, like, you don't get to walk out of it. You knew this, you knew what the, what the deal was. You knew that this was the lowdown. If you can and anticipate me, that... you should have anticipated this coming. Yeah. It's natural to assume that whatever he anticipates, she anticipates, right? Because mm-hmm. he's anticipating what she would anticipate already. And so for this to truly come out of left field, for her to go like, no, this isn't, that's her saying, this isn't how this goes. This isn't the story. This isn't the plan. This You're isn't my reality. Don't do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And then that, sh- and then that happens. And she, for the first time, is aimless. She's floundering. She's, she doesn't know what's happening. Which is interesting because in future productions, we're going to see that small world reprise get cut. Specifically because one actress said, no, 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 this leaves her goalless and my rose is never goalless. Why is she stopping here? She has a greater goal. It doesn't have to do with singing a reprise. Yeah. And I just thought that was really interesting to track. Uh-huh. For the no, first definitely. time, the, the 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 rose with a straightforward plan to walk through life uh, is thrown off the path. Mm-hmm. And she's utterly lost. And then she finds her way back. But Does all she? the worse where. It's not that she finds her way back to the path. It's that she's thrown off the path and goes, okay, I'll start walking forward. And the path will clear its way. She create she she starts on another path, but and this one and this one she walks but, into a whole lot of trees. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was about to say she has a lot more obstacles, and is that yeah, partly that because? Is that's an interesting question? It uh, if she, the path does change and she walks down a different path and she runs into a lot more obstacles, is that because? Herbie was able to anticipate her, but went along with the ride. Whereas Louise is related to her and plays out of the same bag of tricks. So she now has to play against herself and she doesn't know how to deal with that. Yeah. That's a really interesting question. (laughs) I haven't considered that. I came up with that on the Yeah, spot. I'm going to need to let that one sit with me a little bit. Uh, What's your next note? So, my, so uh, now we go on to the strip. Um, and, damn it, you, you, you track a complete evolution from Louise to Gypsy. She completely transforms in this number. One of the most mm. heartbreaking lines in... in the entirety of musical theater. I'm pretty. I'm a pretty girl, mama. Yeah. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> she fucked and, you up and, that and, good, and kid? You, you also know that it's the first time she's ever truly thought that. Uh-huh. It, it, it's the first time she's ever thought that about herself. She has always been in a position where she has been second banana. And for the first time ever, she sees herself in a position of attention and she goes I finally did it I am pretty now which is devastating absolutely devastating and then she comes out for the for the strip 
and she starts this as this like meek like person she starts it as like this this shy quiet sort of trembling thing it sounds like you can tell that she's like trembling from the, from the audio mm-hmm. and then she starts to own it and she starts to experience it and she starts to feel what is comfortable within her and she starts to realize what it is that she likes to do and what it, she is good at doing and she embraces it wholeheartedly mm-hmm. and by the end of it she is a completely different beast she is nothing like the person you had seen two minutes ago not a not an inch not and an ounce of it miss gypsy rosalie Go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. I just found that so incredibly powerful, and I was absolutely enamored with that. Now, now we have the scene. Then, I, I, I always keep coming back to that Louise monologue, and I think in this one, there's a more noticeable regression. What do and you mean I by that? I feel like there's a re- regression out of you see a dramatic transformation from Louise to Gypsy, and I think. With this line, she is finding herself in the position of Louise again. And you see that when she is powerful, when she is powerful, and when she is the star, she is Gypsy. And when she is with her mother, she is Louise. You know, I... I, I, Yeah, sorry. I I think that's why I didn't take any notes, because I kind of picked up on that, and I thought it was the actress not being up to the part rather than an actual choice. But no, you are right. Yeah, that's exactly it. I, I really thought that there was this, like, this fear of regressing, you know? Like, that's something that she so dreaded. And that monologue... Like, she found herself in that thing, and she was trying her absolute hardest to fight her way out of it. And I think by the end, she maybe accomplishes that. But in that moment, she is so back in that place, and she is fighting to escape it. And so then, we move on to... Oh, there's more in the show? Oh, okay. The <laughs> fastest Rose's churn ever in recorded history she gets through the fucker in i literally timed it out she gets through the entire song in three minutes and 28 seconds first note to last note three minutes and 28 seconds and patty lapone who is known for rushing things takes four minutes and 20 seconds So what does that tell you about how fast this Rose's turn is going? Talk about Rose's turn. You said you had a lot to say. Yes. Here, I'll I'll start with this. What would you say if if you had to affix an adjective to the different kinds of Rose's turns that there could be? What are some adjectives that you would put out there? Um... There's regretful, there's mournful, there's triumphant, there's vocally overparted, uh, it's tragic. Um, Angela goes for rage. She's frenzied. Ange- She's very frenzied. She- I read it as straight anger. She was, she she was ripping the heads off the name she was mentioning. I have never heard. My name's Rose. What's yours? So viciously, she was taunting the other end of whoever was receiving that. 
She was threatening them almost. That was the that was what it came off to me. It was like this real red hot fire. This anger. This Where do you rage. think that came from? Besides the scene before, I think. Where do you think the seed of I think that comes from? I think it is the. I don't. I don't think there's a trigger. I think it is the natural progression. When you have a performance that is going at that 100% the entire time, the only way it can end is in a fiery crash and burn. Okay. Not to jump back on the race car uh, metaphor. No, no, no. But... Yeah. You're <laughs> selling me on this Rose's term more than I felt when I just listened to the entire show. And I thought she must have visually been something in this number if everyone's praising her as much as they are. Yeah. Because it just... Audio only, it sounded like she was trying to get through it as fast as possible. And it did seem like she was running on a lot of adrenaline, and I thought maybe the adrenaline ran away from her, and boom, mm. that's why it was so fast, but I was shocked by that's, how that's fast it was. I, it was just, it was truly the, shocked. The speed was something, too. The speed, I didn't know if that was really all up to the conductor or not, but for me, it was her voice. She was lashing. And it was sort of overwhelming. It was sort of like definitely overwhelming. She was, she was getting her she was getting her fury out. Okay. And so then we get to the bows, which if you ever hear anyone talk about Angela Lansbury and Gypsy, they talk about the bows. And this is something that is not in the audio because it is visual. So in the original production, and, 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 because. No, go ahead. I, I will say really quickly, what's important to note out is that this the the audio clip of Rose's turn on this thing is uh, 4 minutes and 54 seconds. Rose's turn ends 3 minutes and 24 seconds. The rest of that is left up to... Go ahead and describe it. So in the original production, you have to have Merman bow. Well, Arthur Lawrence didn't want the bows, but then he realized you can have it both ways because there is some truth of if they don't get to applaud the diva at the end of Rose's turn, they won't listen to the last scene. Angela Lansbury starts bowing. Everyone's going wild. She continues bowing. They're still going wild. She goes to bow again, and there's a glint in her eye. And you realize, and apparently most nights it elicited absolute gasps from audience members. You realized with this one look, with this crazed glint in her eyes, that she was bowing in real life. The bows were diegetic. And you, the audience, were not diegetic. You were in her head applauding her. And she was just bowing to the applause of the only existed in her own reality <sighs> which as you pointed out this is a rose that has her own separate reality and it feels like that is the natural progression and it's also yeah. why i feel like i'm not able to get the best view of who she is as rose with just an audio because it seems like the climax of the entire performance and the apotheosis of the entire performance is a visual moment. I think if I'm in this audio, it's it's 90 seconds after the song ends, right? Silence falls 22 seconds before it's over. So it's just under a minute of applause and then 25 seconds of stark silence. 
you sit there listening to it and you get chills. You're like, oh, like you sort of piece it together. You're like, oh, Jesus, it's quiet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's that's what it is to me. But then that final scene played out and I walked away going, "Eh, they'll be fine. Now that we've had this discussion, I no longer feel that way. But was that your initial reaction to that? It yeah, it was like oh okay, nothing's changed, nothing n- nothing nothing happened there in the same yep. place they started off. Okay, yeah, whatever. That is that is and how I felt at the beginning before we had this discussion. Now that we've had this discussion, now, I want to go back and now listen. Yeah, it, now that we've had this discussion, it's oh god, nothing's going to change. She is she is going well, to stay stuck in this delusion. She is jumping into this at a well, hair. I don't she has know not because grown. she has not developed. With Rose's turn, it is it does develop. It starts getting more angry. It starts getting more violent. It's potentially getting murderous. Yes. It, it now is a, as good a moment as any to mention that the real life Rose Hovick was a murderous lesbian, and her daughters were both convinced that she had killed multiple of her lovers. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep. She had multiple women in her life disappear under very mysterious circumstances, and both Gypsy oh, and June were convinced that they were murdered by Rose. What the fuck? Really? Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, just about the historical accuracy of this show. After opening night, Gypsy Rosalie walked up to Arthur Lawrence and said, You know what? I love Herbie. I wish I could have thought of him for my autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> it's based oh, on God. what we now term an autobiography. So, the show's completely fiction. But... yeah. In real life, Rose ended up being a murderous lesbian. So, yeah, I didn't know Angela that, is but, becoming but, more violent at the end, um, maybe it's but, starting but, to what, align but, with reality. <laughs> but what now terrifies me is that she seems to have, like, like after working through that anger, you think something's come of this. You think we've gone through these emotions that have been pent up we've we've had this admission to ourselves sure we're falling back into old tropes but we leave have after having that experience we leave knowing that that this has happened now like after this discussion i've never been so convinced that that all meant nothing to her she is not changed well and the she very is the last exact same the she jumps very into it with, last sorry thing you hear in the show is the I had a dream mon- the musical theme I had a dream she's yeah. still dreaming and well sure you get the inkling of like oh gosh it's still there it's still like oh it could it's still gonna rear its old head oh that's great with with well, Angela Lansbury it's no this is this it it is the same mm-hmm. she is not no she some, is the same that she was 20 years ago some roses walk away and they're ready to give that up and so it's an ironic reprise. But Angela Lansbury, yeah. it's still a call to action, apparently. It's it's intimidating how quickly she jumps into it. She doesn't jump into it with, like, exhaustion isn't the right word, but there's no indicator that she has just experienced Rose's turn. Mm-hmm. It, is un- it is unsettling that she jumps back into it with the same vigor she had in Uncle Jocko's. 
Yeah. That is not something that you expect, and that's unsettling. I'll say this about Angela. It does appear to be a total performance. Now, now that we've talked it through, I think I do like her performance a lot more. Well, And you were saying she didn't consider a lot of the dialogue. And I asked you, do you think that's an intentional choice? So let me ask you again. Do you think it's an intentional choice that some of her responses are automated? I no longer think that this is a, th- a single thought performance from Angela Lansbury. I think her Rose is a one-note single thought person. And I think that is communicated really effectively. I think that she... And it's not about her being one note. It's about her butting up against reality in a world that is constantly changing. Yes. She is not giving an automatic performance. Rose is living an automatic life. There's a fucking tagline for you. There's a (laughs) soundbite. Well, thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. Fuck. Um, oh, fuck. That's pretty much all I have to say about this production. Do you have any final notes you want to leave us off with? I had a dream. A dream about you, baby. It's gonna Me? come true, baby. Wrap it up. We think that we're through, <laughs> but baby. Thank you, everyone, for tuning You'll in to this episode of the Unauthorized swell. Critics Circle. You'll oh, this is gonna be so distracting. God, have <laughs> a world on a plate. The Ethel Merman applause. Starting um, now. It's so distracting trying to get a, a concluding statement out with this. Thank you for listening. I already said that. Um, this is Jesus the first Christ. in an eight-part series. Do I need to go to the bridge? <laughs> I can't be more concise we than you want me to be. Do it. This is the first episode of an eight-part series in the Gypsy Week. So we very much do hope that you will be coming back and listening throughout the rest of our week as we jump on all We're these different all. productions. I'm going to keep talking until... I'm going to... Yeah, we got all of them. We are going to be doing every single production of Gypsy. Was your was your Aunt Rose in a very small regional performance with a 50-seat We'll maximum? find a bootleg. We are going to be covering it. We'll find a bootleg. We'll cover it. Okay. We will see you all tomorrow. And nothing's gonna stop us till we're through, honey. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the Unauthorized Critics Circle. Join us tomorrow where Gypsy Mania continues and we cover time daily. If you enjoyed the episode, rate us, review us, and subscribe to us on your platform of choice. And if you have any recommendations, questions, or virtual flowers to send our way, email us at unccpodcast at gmail.com. The Unauthorized Critics Circle podcast is unauthorized. The podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Gypsy! And all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyright of the respective trademark and copyright holders. The Unauthorized Critics Circle cannot help the listener locate or distribute recordings discussed herein. (laughs) 